You're listening to the Informal Bible Study, a casual and applicational look at the Scriptures. I'm John Stonge, and it's great to have you with us today. In just a few moments, we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, and we're going to be asking the question, can you lead if you haven't learned to follow? But before we take a look at that, just a couple quick things I wanted to share with you. First of all, I'd invite you to stop by our website, which is DesireJesus.com. And at the website, you'll find a variety of things. You'll find resources that I've written throughout the course of the years to be a benefit to you in your walk with Christ. One of the resources that I'd love to highlight today is the Desire Jesus One-Year Devotional. It's a 365-day devotional where we take a look at various scriptures and what the scriptures say, and we learn how to apply those scriptures to our lives as we grow in our walk with Christ. And you'll find that on the bookstore page at DesireJesus.com. You'll also find our blog, you'll find links to both of our podcasts, and you'll also find a link to be able to sign up for our weekly newsletter. And if you're not on the newsletter yet, we'd encourage you to sign up. It's just a dose of encouragement in your inbox each and every Tuesday, and we're happy to send that to you. So again, that's all at DesireJesus.com. And if you haven't stopped by in a while, be sure to stop by. There's new content always being added to the website. Now, as I mentioned at the start of our episode today, today we're looking at Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, and we'll be asking the question, can you lead if you haven't learned to follow? So let's take a look at that together. Now, today we're, we're back in the book of Romans. We're continuing our look at the book of Romans. And we don't have much more time in the book of Romans. We actually started it back in September. Uh, I don't know if, if uh, that sounds surprising to you or not that we started the book back then, but we've been taking it about a half a chapter per week. And so we paused a little bit as we focused on some of the scriptures related to Palm Sunday and Good Friday and Easter. Uh, but today we're back in the book of Romans, and we're in Romans chapter 13 today. And as we look at this particular chapter, we're going to be looking at the fact that authority is referenced here, um, and leadership is referenced here, and following is referenced here. And we're going to phrase this in our minds as we look at this portion of Scripture as a question. And the question is, can you lead if you haven't learned to follow? Can you lead if you haven't learned to follow? I think leadership skills are important. I think we as believers in Jesus Christ have been given plenty of opportunities to lead and plenty of opportunities to influence others, but I don't think you can truly lead in the way that the Lord wants you to lead or the way that the Lord wants me to lead if we haven't first learned to follow. And in Romans chapter 13, so today we'll just be looking at the first seven verses, um, but in this portion of Scripture, it shows us the importance of following leadership, and it's specifically using the example of governmental leadership, but we do so as a way of glorifying Christ and recognizing these type of authorities that He's placed over us. So take your Bibles and turn with me, if you will. Romans 13, we'll start with verse 1. This is what it states in this passage. It says, "...let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist..." have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. 
For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the privilege that it is to be able to come together this morning and to look at this portion of your word. And we pray that as we look at Romans 13 today, as we study these concepts, as we think about the nature of uh, leadership and the nature of what it looks like to live in subjection to authority, we pray, Lord, that you'd help us to understand these things on a deeper level. We pray that our relationship with you would be strengthened. And we pray that by your grace that we would be able to live in the context that you've called us to live with a clear conscience, knowing that we have been obedient to the leading of your word and the direction your word has given us. We thank you, Lord, for all of these things, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you ever want to ask a risky question to somebody, and I don't know that I, I should really like totally advise you to do this, but if you ever want to ask a risky possibly even explosive question to somebody, ask them their opinion on the government. When you say that could be somewhat explosive, depending on the context, just ask them their opinion of the government. You know, to be honest with you, that's, that's a question that um, I've learned in most contexts I don't really want to ask because of what tends to come from those conversations. But few things are debated in a more heated way than people's opinions on politics and people's opinions on government. We debate that sometimes at length. But at the same time, when you look at what government is and what government has the capacity to do, the government we live under has a profound impact on the nature and the quality of our day-to-day -day life. It absolutely does. No one can deny that. Your government, my government, has an impact on our day-to-day life. And in fact, when you look throughout history, and I always enjoy reading through history, especially well-written history, and, and uh, when you look throughout history, you can see examples uh, of very healthy governments and very unhealthy governments. And when you look through modern-day news, you can see examples right now in our present day of very healthy governments in the world and, and very unhealthy governments. And when you look at Scripture, you can see examples of very unhealthy governments and very healthy governments. You see this throughout the course of human history. Now, when it comes to government, when it comes to life, and when it comes to our reaction to authority, I think most of us, generally speaking, like to be the person who calls the shots. You know, we want to be the person who calls the shots. We like to be the people who make decisions, I think, in many respects, more so than we like to be uh, the people on the receiving end of decisions that have been made. And I think that preference tends to show up 
at a very early stage of life. I think that's something that when you're a child, you like to call the shots. I think that's something particularly as you segue toward adulthood in your early teen years, you like to call the shots. I never, I'll never forget a debate I had uh, several years ago with one of my children. Uh, in the kitchen, we were um, having some conflict over a decision I had made. And this particular child, who I actually received permission to tell you this story today, by the way. I, I, I said, all right, here's the deal. Every time I tell stories about you guys afterward, everyone always tries to play detective. And they're like, which kid was it? This sounds like that kid. And they'll be like, all right, I think it was that kid. Was it that kid? Well, that kid, who I'm not going to use uh, that kid's name, <laughs> even though I have that kid's permission. Um, but we were in my, in my kitchen and we were debating something. It wasn't much of a debate. I had made uh, some direction, and, or given some direction, and uh, was being bristled against. And I said, listen, um, when the day comes, and you're a middle-aged person, <laughs> all right, it was Jay, all right? So, so I, 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 again, I have his permission. And I was like, look, Jay, when... When, you know, when, you're, when the day comes and you're a middle-aged man, I will feel really bad for you if you let a 15-year-old call the shots in your house. said, I'm just going to tell you now, I'm going to feel real bad for you if that's the case. And I also said, said, look, I realize that you would like to be the one calling the shots, but before that day comes, you need to learn an imper- just a very important lesson. And the lesson is this. You cannot be an effective leader until you first learn to follow. Now, we're a few years from that conversation, and recently I was having a conversation with somebody else, and you know who backed me up in that conversation? Jay. He goes, he goes in the midst of that conversation, he goes, you know what? He's right. He goes, he's right. And I was like, what? Solidarity. I was like, that's right. You know, it was nice to, I, to experience that validation. But the truth is, just in life, I mean, we all learned that lesson as a teenager, did we not? Did you not, as you were, as you were getting older and older, you know, you, you finally got to a point where you probably thought, all right, you know, I know what I'm doing better than other people around me. I just need to do this. I need to call the shots. But the truth is, you can't really learn to lead, even when it comes to leading ourselves. We can't really learn to lead in the way that the Lord wants us to lead until our hearts understand the nature of what it looks like to follow in a godly way first. And I believe that's a concept that the Apostle Paul was trying to communicate here in Romans chapter 13. So we're looking at the first seven verses of this chapter, and he's talking about this idea of being subject to authority. And even as we prepare to dig into the details of these verses, I'll say this. Christians can have a very powerful impact on the culture. And I think that influence can have a very huge impact on society as we as believers learn to subject ourselves to the Lord while also showing respect to the authorities that He's placed in our lives, the authorities that He Himself has instituted to govern us. So look again at at, at these verses here that the Apostle Paul references in Romans chapter 13 as he he speaks about these things, and I want to point out a couple things that I believe are communicated in this passage. And one of those things is this. I believe we're told here Don't resist what God has put in place. Don't resist what God has put in place. Look at the first two verses. Let me reread these. Here it says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. 
Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Now, earlier this week, I'll reference Jay again. Uh, Jay and I were, were up later than the rest of the house. And uh, we were hanging out together, we were sitting down, and we were actually uh, searching for a particular news-related video that we had seen some time ago, and one of us brought it up in conversation. We thought, oh, let's see if we could find it on YouTube. So we were scrolling through YouTube trying to find this news clip uh, that we thought was interesting. But before we found the news clip, in fact, we never found the clip that we were looking for, uh, in the midst of searching for it, though, we actually came across some additional videos and they included stories of people that got into trouble or conflict with the police, and their conflict with the police was exacerbated by the fact that they resisted arrest. They resisted arrest. That was the type of thing that we were, it was showing us you know, multiple times in these videos, people resisting arrest. And as you can imagine, it did not go well for them, right? Resisting arrest did not work out in their favor. Now, you look at what Paul says here, and he even talks about this idea of resist. You know, he even uses that word, right? Now imagine living in the Apostle Paul's time as he's writing this letter to the church at Rome. Do you suppose if you were living during that time, the time Paul's speaking about here, the time in which this letter's being communicated, that you would have wanted to cooperate with governmental authorities, or do you think you would have been tempted to resist them? Which way do you think your heart would have been leaning if you lived in that context? By the way, the city of Rome, where this church was gathered, where Paul was writing this letter, this was the capital of the Roman Empire, the most powerful empire on this earth, and arguably the most powerful empire, some would say, that has ever existed. And this was, by the way, the same government that was complicit in crucifying Jesus Christ and here you have believers living under this government. And so it would not have surprised me if it persisted among many of the believers living at that time a hard feeling toward the Roman government. Right? I don't think that they would have been naturally showing an affinity toward their government. Particularly because believers were also experiencing various forms of persecution in that era. And eventually, the Apostle Paul, who wrote these things down, was executed by the Roman government. And yet, when you look at what he's talking about here in a portion of Scripture like this, he's teaching us a principle where he says, don't resist what God has put in place, effectively. I'm summarizing when I say that, but he's saying, don't resist what God's put in place. Paul knew that the Lord wanted believers to have an impact on the culture in which they lived. And he wanted, and that the Lord wanted believers to, to have opportunities to testify to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so if believers in whatever culture they were living in, reading these words or not reading these words, but if believers were, were needlessly resisting their government, they would have little opportunity to proclaim the gospel uh, like they could have had if they were cooperating as best as they could. And so Paul was careful to remind the church that it was God himself who appointed human government. And he did so as a means to protect us. He did so as a means to organize us. And he also did so as a means to restrain us from going in the direction that our sinful hearts really would like to go. Could you imagine what life would be like if there was total anarchy on this earth? You and I know that there are people on this earth that the only reason that they stay in line is because of the fear 
that they have of how they might get in trouble with governmental authorities. Their inner conscience is not very strong. And so the ways in which they are restrained from doing certain things is because there is a consequence that might come in a civic or a civil kind of way. I think it's interesting, though, when we talk about government, that Scripture tells us a few things about what God is doing behind the scenes in regard to government. Look at what Scripture tells us in in Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1. This is an interesting Scripture to me, because a lot of times I I, I look at, you know, throughout the course even uh, of just our own country, and a lot of times I think, I mean, I certainly pay attention to what's going on in our country. I have every reason to believe that you do as well. And do you ever think, you know, as you look at certain leaders, there are certain leaders that you probably agree with and others that you disagree with, and sometimes those that you disagree with might rise to pretty high levels of power in our government. And what's your response to that? You know, I remember at one point, um, oh, I, was, I, I think I was probably in college at the time. I remember at the, at the time I just started voting. I was also feeling somewhat powerless in regard to, like, what do you do if you have high officials in government making decisions that you believe are very unwise decisions? And I remember one particular Sunday, I came across Proverbs 21.1, so let me read it for us. There it says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. You know, so I just picture that. It's like, you know, the Lord's hand can turn the heart of a king or a leader or a president or Congress or whatever fill-in-the-blank, governor, you know, whatever direction he wants to, right? The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. I also like the counsel we're given in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 of 1 Timothy 2 say this, I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them intercede on their behalf, and give thanks for them. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. What was Paul encouraging Timothy and all believers ultimately who would read that portion of Scripture to do? To pray for our leaders. Lift them up to the Lord. Pray for them. Pray for them. You know, he's saying intercede on their behalf. Give thanks for them. That can be challenging, right? It's much easier for me to give thanks for the leaders that I voted for versus the leaders that I didn't vote for, but somehow end up having an impact on my life. And so I could find myself, you know, do you ever say like, all right, I'll pray for them, but I'm going to pray that God will smite them. You know, I'm just going to, just smite them, God. Just do that. That's my prayer. Amen. I don't think that's what he has in mind with that portion of scripture, right? It's not, it's not like, it's not revenge prayers, right? You know, he's saying, lift them up, pray for all people, ask God to help them. You know, ask God to give them wisdom. Ask God to make their hearts soft. You know, in Proverbs 21, the Scripture says the Lord could just take that heart, steer it in whatever direction He wants. So pray that the Lord works in the hearts of those who have influence over our lives, our governmental leaders, or any leader, really. I think this applies in really any, any realm of leadership, does it not? You know, you're having conflict with a boss, you're having conflict with a professor, you're having conflict with family members, whoever has authority over you. Pray that God gives them wisdom. Pray for them. Our challenge from the Lord is to pray for our leaders instead of resisting them. 
And we're told when we look at what the Scripture tells us in verse 2 in particular, we're told that we can expect judgment or governmental punishment, effectively is what it's getting at here, if we choose to resist them, because these are authorities who exist and serve as an extension of God's authority until the time of Christ's reign, you know, when Christ comes to this earth again and returns to reign over this earth. But in the meantime, these governmental authorities have been put in place to serve in this kind of capacity as an extension of God's authority. So don't resist what God's put in place. Scripture goes on to give us additional counsel. And that's this, and it, it kind of rhymes the way I phrase this here. So ready? This is going to stick in your head and stick in your heart. Maybe you could even make a, like a longer poem about this. And if it's good, I'll even post it on the church Facebook page, all right? But you have nothing to fear if your conscience is clear. Now, those of you that are musical, do you like the rhythm to that too? You have nothing to fear if your conscience is clear. You're going to remember that, right? On the drive home, you have nothing to fear if your conscience is clear. You're going to say that to your kids, right? You have nothing to fear, especially if I keep saying it. You're going to be like, enough, right? It's like an earworm now. But it's true. You have nothing to fear if your conscience is clear. Look at verse 3 down to verse 5. It says, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. I love that line. But also for the sake of conscience. So, I know this won't surprise anybody, um, but when I was growing up, I enjoyed causing mischief. All right, I'm just going to confess that to you. All right, Some of you knew me when I was growing up. You're like, no, he did. It's true. <laughs> um, and I'd often do it just to entertain myself. So sometimes I would do that without telling anyone that I had done anything. It was just going to be like a funny thought to me. And uh, I would just kind of treasure it as my own, like, that was really funny, and just do it to make myself laugh. Other times I would do so to get the attention, the unhealthy attention of my friends. And I remember uh, this was right, this was my first month as a college student. So I went to Cairn University, first month as a college student. Uh, my friends and I, one evening, uh, we were hanging out in the ball field there, and then just past the ball field, there's railroad tracks. And then on the other side of the tracks, I don't, I don't know if it's still there, but at the time, there was a bar. And uh, there were a whole bunch of people the one night. So we're on the, on the one side of the tracks here at the edge of the ball field, and we went down toward the tracks where there's all that gravel. And uh, we could hear all these people outside that bar just making all sorts of noise and saying all sorts of stuff. And I thought it would be so funny if I took a piece of that gravel, if I took one of, the, like one of those rocks, and I just threw it over in that direction, not to hit anybody. Now, by the way, those of you who are shaking your head, I know it's dumb, okay? I'm 42 years old now. I know it's dumb. But in the moment, I was like, this will be funny, because in my mind, I thought, we already have a head start. We already have a place to go. Let's see if we could get them to chase us. Wouldn't that be funny to have a whole group of drunk people chasing you? When I was 18, that seemed hilarious to me. And so I took a piece of that gravel, and I threw it so that it landed in the midst of that crowd. Intentional not to hit anyone or anything, but I just threw it to get their attention. And I was like, all right, drunk people, 
the race is on, come on. And guess what? They did chase us. In fact, some of them started on foot, the others got in a pickup truck, and I kid you not, grabbed bats. They had baseball bats, and they zipped out of there and onto campus. You were campus security. I apologize for this. This is decades ago. Don't hold this against me. But we were like, oh no, this escalated way too far. And we're running to get back to our dorms. I lived in Souter dorm at the time, and I was running as fast as I could back to Souter. And I was like, I just have to get there before the truck with guys and baseball bats gets up there and figures out where we're going. And we got in there, and I went into the dorm, and my friends, they all went into their rooms, and we're all just like thinking, what's going to happen next? A few minutes later, security comes in. And, uh, you know, they start going room to room trying to figure out, why is there a, a, a truck of guys with baseball bats ready to kill some of you here? How did this even come to pass? And uh, security came in my room, and I remember looking at the, the security guard. Again, I apologize. I know what you do, um, and I appreciate your service. But I was 18 and very scared in that moment. And uh, I just looked at him, and I bold-faced lied. I just lied. I was like, I don't know. I was like, we were down there. Those guys are drunk, you know. I, I don't know what they're doing. And they just, they got something in their head, and uh, they came after us. And uh, my other friends that were with me were like, sounds like a reasonable explanation. Let's go with what John said. And they're like, yep. And security, I think deep down, they could tell that I wasn't being fully forthright in that moment, but what are they going to do? Like, I'm sober. These guys are all drunk. We won the argument, but I was lying. And, uh, and I, I remember feeling like, I was like, what? I remember saying this to myself because I felt so dumb in the moment. I was like, why? I, this is literally what I said. Why do you do these things? I remember just, I was like, why do you do these things? Why is this funny to you? Why do you do these things? And I was like, I was like all right, this, I have to stop now. I have to stop. I can't do this anymore. And uh, it's like, no more pranks, no more provoking drunk people, no, like, don't do it. Don't, it's like I'm having a conversation where I'm both the son and the parent, right? In the moment, I'm like, don't do it. You will be tempted to do it. Don't do it. And for the next little bit, I remember being nervous because I thought, what if security questions me further? And what if they ask the right question? And I don't have a snappy response that gets me out of this. And I remember for a little bit after that thinking, like, I can be in big trouble. I'm a brand new student here. What if I get kicked out of here? I don't imagine that it's very common that they have a group of guys pull up in a truck with baseball bats ready to pound people. And I just provoke this. And I thought, oh, no. Now everything subsided. Life went on. But do you suppose this rhyme was clear in my mind at that moment? You have nothing to fear if your conscience is clear. My conscience was not clear. I had much to fear. And when you look at what Paul is saying in this passage of Scripture, he points out that when it comes to authority, if your conscience is bothering you, you know, if you've provoked something, I mean, you're going to be troubled inside is kind of what he's getting at. But there's nothing you need to be worried about if your conscience isn't being uh, provoked through your rebellion. Right? If our conduct is good, as it speaks about here, we don't need to, be, to worry about punishment. 
But if our conduct is immoral, or if our conduct is unlawful, or if our conduct is unethical, we have great reason to be afraid because the authorities who govern us have been given great and broad authority to address sin in decisive ways. That's what he's getting at here. We're even told that the government, the way he phrases it here, he says, we're told that the government does not bear the sword in vain. What does that mean? The government does not bear the sword in vain. Well, it literally means that the government has been authorized by God to execute citizens in response to certain crimes. That could be a controversial subject, don't you think? I hear people debate that all the time, but that's exactly what Paul's saying here. In fact, I just saw the news uh, earlier this week that our state Supreme Court uh, upheld a conviction against a man who had killed a police officer several years ago, and the conviction that was given against the, that man that had committed murder uh, was that he was to be executed, and then there was some debate, well, should he be executed, should he not be executed? Our state Supreme Court earlier this week upheld the conviction and said, no, he's to be executed, and so I don't know when the date is, but sometime soon that man will be now executed. They will be able to carry that sentence out in the way that it's spoken of here in this portion of Scripture where it says that, that ultimately the government does not bear the sword in vain. That's the way Paul phrases it here. Let me say this. Instead of worrying about executions or instead of worrying about getting caught if we do something unlawful, followers of Christ are called to live with a clear conscience in this world. You and I are called to live with a clear conscience in this world because Christ has cleansed us of sin. When you trusted in Jesus Christ, you were cleansed of sin. He took your sin upon Himself and He cleansed and forgave you. In the eyes of God, as one who has been cleansed by Christ, you are referred to as being holy and blameless in God's sight. So you've been cleansed of your sin. So we're called to live with a clear conscience in this world. We're called not to go back to the shackles of sin that Christ has already freed us from. Saying, don't go back to what you were already tied up in. You've been set free. You've been cleansed. Live with a clear conscience. And let me also say this in an applicational kind of way, and I want you to hear me as I say this. In, ad- in, in addition to uh, living with the spiritual blessing of a clear conscience, I'm convinced that living with a clear conscience is also a wonderful thing for our emotional health. And what I mean by that is this. In my years of offering pastoral counsel, so I've been doing this now for a little over 20 years, I've noticed a pattern. I've also noticed this in my own life, but the pattern is this. I've come to realize that there are some people in this world who are struggling with anxiety, and who are struggling with depression, and if you trace their story back far enough to where this all began, in many cases, you can come right back to a season of time or a moment when they violated their conscience and then just lived with that violation. They never confessed it. They never repented of it. They just lived with it as part of their life from that point on. They violated their conscience and then they try and pretend that they didn't. 
And then decade after decade or year after year, they keep trying to do that. And all of a sudden, it's like, why am I anxious? Why am I feeling depressed? And you start tracing that back, and it's like, wait a second. What happened? When did this start? And you trace it back, and you discover, oh, it began when you violated your conscience. When you ignored the Word of God, when you ignored the voice of God, and you persisted living with a violated conscience for year after year after decade after decade. And now here we are dealing with the fruit of this. But you have nothing to fear if your conscience is clear. And Christ invites us to confess and repent before Him. And to be cleansed of our sin because He already paid for it for us. Something else that Paul mentions here from a governmental perspective that falls right in line with all the things we've been looking at is this. He says, don't rob those who are called to serve you. Again, I'm paraphrasing as I say that, but the essence of his teaching here is, don't rob those who are called to serve you. Look at verse 6 and verse 7. He says, for because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Several weeks ago, did you do your taxes? <laughs> I had the privilege several weeks ago not only to do taxes for my wife and I who file a joint return, uh, but now as, as uh, my children are in the workforce uh, but still living under our roof, uh, I helped them with their taxes as well. So I finished our taxes. I did our, our federal, our state, and our local. Isn't that exciting? You get to do local taxes now. And um, it's always nice when they, they add another element to it. Um, and then I did the same thing for child number one, and child number two, and child number three. And then child number four is like, hey, I'm, I'm of working age this year. At the end of this year, I'll be working age. So I'm like, great. Next year, what do I get to do? Five tax returns, right? For federal, state, and local taxes. Lovely, right? Admittedly, doing taxes, not my favorite task, okay? I don't really enjoy doing it. Um, and I was even thinking, maybe I should just encourage my children to just stop working, just, just give up, lose all sense of ambition, just, just mooch forever, right? Just mooch forever, just give it up. It'll be much less paperwork on my part at the end of the year, right? But no, all kidding aside, when you look at what Paul says here, he makes a point to stress that part of being good citizens involves paying taxes. Now, I recognize you did not come to worship this morning hoping to hear a statement about taxes. But it's interesting what Paul says here, that's funding. Our taxes fund our government. Our taxes pay the wages of those who dedicate their time to serving us as what? Ministers of God. Did you notice that when Paul said that there? Isn't it interesting to consider that those who work in these capacities, that those that work in governmental office, would be referred to that way in Scripture? Literally, it says they are ministers of God. I wonder how many people serving in government roles think of themselves that way, or even know that the Scripture describes them that way. As ministers of God? I did not think of that when I got my license a few years ago. You know, when I updated it, I wasn't like, I'm so ministered. <laughs> Right now. And then you look at what it says here. That's how they're described. Now, I don't imagine that was an easy teaching for the church at Rome to receive. I don't think that was easy for them to see or, or hear or, or think about. Many, understandably by the way, were very uncomfortable with the ways that the Roman government was using their tax revenue. 
uh, and many were very upset with the high rates they were being charged. They weren't comfortable with that. Does that sound familiar, by the way? Are you comfortable with everything government does with your money? Are you happy with the rate you're charged, or do you wish it was less? And if it gets lessened a little this year, do you hope it's a little less next year? And a little less next year? I certainly do. And yet you look at what the Scripture says. It says, pay it. Pay it. It's also interesting that Jesus addressed it. He addressed this in Matthew 22. He said it this way. So he was being challenged by a group of people. And they're like, hey, you know, we don't like paying these taxes. We think that the government is unjust. What do you think, Jesus? And it says, tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. Interesting moment, right? But ultimately, what's the Scripture teaching us here? It's saying, don't rob those who've been called to serve you. But I have one final question for us as we think about all of this, right? We could have called this Good Citizen Sunday, right? If we thought of giving it a theme. But there's an important question we still need to ask that we haven't asked yet, and this is what I want to finish with. What do you do if an authority asks you to disobey God? Because these seven verses are telling you and telling me, cooperate with your government. Work with your government. Support your leaders. When we look at some of the other Scriptures, what's it saying? Pray for those who lead you. Pray for them. Intercede on their behalf. But then, I think it also... At least in my mind, my mind's also provoked to ask the question, what if an authority asks me to disobey God? What do I do then? I want to be a good citizen, but what if an authority asks me to do something that would violate what God has clearly told me to do in His Word? Am I called to be obedient in a context like that? God's Word gives us multiple examples of that dilemma playing out. And I'll just point out one. It's from Daniel chapter 3. And I'll wait a second to bring a portion of Scripture up on the screen for us to see, but I'll give you the summary of what was taking place. And in Daniel chapter 3, you have King Nebuchadnezzar, very powerful ruler. I guess we could say at the time he was the most powerful king on the earth in that particular generation. And he built a golden statue, and it was about 90 feet tall. And he invited all the leaders and authorities in his kingdom to come and to bow to it and to worship it. And as they did that, it was kind of like, here's our way of showing allegiance to our king. Here's our way of showing allegiance to our government. We're going to bow before this thing as like a pledge, as a pledge of support, as an act of worship showing that we are subject to Nebuchadnezzar and his authority. And so all the leaders in his kingdom of any stripe, any kind, were called to come before this statue of gold and to bow down before it and to worship it. And then you have three men, Hananiah, uh, Azariah, and Mishael. Do you remember Hananiah, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael? Do you remember those guys? Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. You probably know them better as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And Scripture refers to them as servants of the Most High God. And they're trying their best to be, I mean, they work with Nebuchadnezzar's government, They had been taken as exiles into Babylon years earlier, but they worked with the government at this point. 
and this decree goes out, but they're servants of the Most High God, and so they already know they're not going to violate their conscience and bow to this statue. So they won't do it. They won't bow down. And what was done in that particular context, one of the ways of execution that they would use in that government was they would literally just throw you into fire. I think maybe just a clean way to kill somebody seems very efficient. Just throw them into fire. So they would heat up these furnaces and throw people into fire. So that's what they did. They heat this thing up so hot, in fact, that it kills the guards that throw them in. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're bound with rope, and they're thrown in. And then the Scripture tells us that by the grace of God, they were protected from death. They thought they very well might die. I mean, why wouldn't they think? They knew God could protect them. They didn't know if it was God's will for them to live or die in that moment. They just knew that because they wouldn't bow, they were now being thrown into the flames of that, of that furnace. They are, they're thrown in there. The three of them are thrown in there. And then as people from a distance are looking into that furnace and can see what's going on in there, they know that three guys were thrown in and the guards that threw them in died because they got so close to the flame that they, also, that they died. The guards die. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown in. And everybody looks and they're like, who's the fourth guy in there? And why are they in there moving around? And something did burn. The only, you know what? The, the only thing that burned in that flame was what? The ropes that those men had been tied with. They're thrown in and the ropes burn and they don't. And someone else shows up. You know who theologians believe that that fourth person that showed up was? They believe it's an Old Testament, you know, uh, um, representation of Christ. A moment during the Old Testament where Christ literally shows up in this context. He hadn't yet taken, you know, physical flesh in the sense that we understand, you know, that he did when he came through Mary, but people believe that that's Christ that showed up. In Daniel chapter 3 verse 25, did I not have a scripture for it? I guess I don't. I'll just read it for us. But there it says, look, Nebuchadnezzar shouted, I see four men unbound walking around in the fire unharmed. And the fourth looks like a god. And they're looking at this, and these men lived. So the question we're being asked from an applicational standpoint is, what do you do if your government asks you or an authority asks you to disobey God? If you're ever presented with that kind of dilemma, and you might be. Well, I'd encourage you, if that moment comes, to listen to the Lord to follow the counsel of His Word and to accept the consequences, whatever they may be. That's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were doing, right? They, they said, we will not worship this statue, but we also will not, we're not going to fight you. We accept the consequences for our decision. So it doesn't speak of them fighting the ropes put around them. They accept the consequences. So they figure, alright, maybe we'll live. Maybe we won't. But it's also interesting to recognize that there's not a single thing in this world that can be taken away from you that you weren't already going to lose anyway. And I think they probably had peace with that thought in their mind. It's not a single thing in this world that can be taken away from you or me that you weren't going to lose anyway. So in that moment, they're like, hey, maybe we get to see the Lord face to face today. Or maybe He miraculously lets us live. Or how about both? And that's what happens. They're allowed to live and Jesus shows up in the flames with them. And they live. And by the grace of God, they're allowed to continue to serve. So let me say this as we finish up. 
as far as it depends on you, live at peace with the government that the Lord's allowed you to live under. You know, don't needlessly resist them. Function before them and before the Lord with a clear conscience. Fund their ability to serve you as the ministers of the Lord through your taxes. But never disobey the counsel of God that He revealed in His Word, even if it costs you every earthly thing to be obedient to God. I'll say this, since I've already mentioned Jay twice, I'll reference him a third time. I told him last night, I said, I said um, do you want to hear what I'm preaching on tomorrow? And he's like, yeah, sure. So we talked about it, and I, I shared the concepts, and I said, let me, let me ask you the question I'm going to ask the congregation as we finish up. I'm going to ask them, what do you do if an authority asks you to disobey God? So I wanted to know from him. I was like, what would your answer to this question be? If an authority asked you to disobey God, how would you phrase this in your mind? What would your answer be? And he said, well, this is how I'd phrase it. I've got to listen to the highest authority. So if there's a debate or if there's a dilemma, I'm going to pick the highest authority. And I was like, that's a good answer. So I guess I have to give him part of my paycheck today, right? You know, I'm doing my job for me. But the point being, what does Scripture tell us? Learn to follow for Christ's glory. That's what we're being called to do. Learn to follow for Christ's glory. Let's pray. Lord, thank You so much for the privilege to be able to look at Your Word together today. And thank You for the interesting things that Paul mentions in Romans 13. I, just even looking at this during the course of this week, I couldn't help but think to myself, this isn't really a subject I would think to preach about in most contexts. It's not really a subject that right off the top of my mind I would think that You would necessarily even want me to preach about. And then we come, again, we come up to this portion of Scripture where you have Paul... We have believers living in the midst of a context where there were certain things that were taking place around them that certainly weren't very enjoyable for believers to experience. And yet, in the midst of all of that, under your Holy Spirit's inspiration, Paul pens these things down, encouraging believers to be obedient to the authorities that you've placed over them. So Lord, thank you for this example. Thank you for the privilege that you give us to lead. But we know, Lord, that when we're leading and when we're influencing, that we're not really going to have the privilege to lead and influence in a way that will glorify the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. We don't understand the nature of what it looks like to live in subjection to the authority over us. And Lord, you're the ultimate authority, but you also tell us very clearly in this portion of your word that you've also placed governmental authorities as an extension of your authority, and they serve as ministers of God. So Lord, when I'm tempted to grumble in regard to politics or things related to government, help me to remember this portion of Scripture. Help us to remember this. Help us to remember what we were told in Proverbs 21 and 1 Timothy as well, that, that, that you've called us to be people who recognize that you can, you can steer the heart of a king. You've called us to be people that instead of resisting our authorities, we're called to pray for them. And so, Lord, we lift up before You right now our entire government, every authority that You've placed over us, whether it be on a local, state, or national level. We just lift them all before You. We pray that You'd work in their hearts, that they'd come to know You, that they'd be sensitive to Your will. We pray for our judicial branches as well. They make decisions in regard to how, how law gets interpreted in this country. We pray that they would operate with wisdom. 
And we pray, Lord, that Your will and that godliness that's modeled after the, after the heart of Your Son, Jesus Christ, would prevail, just prevail in the context of our government and in the context of our culture. And so as You tell us in Your Word, we lift up our leaders before You today, and we pray that Your will would be done. So thank You, Lord, for teaching us hard things, and we pray that as we seek to live these things out, that by Your grace that we would bring You glory. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Informal Bible Study. As I mentioned at the start of the episode, we'd invite you to stop by our website, which is desirejesus.com, and be sure to take advantage of all the different resources to help you in your spiritual growth that we have right there at the website. And if you're not on our email list yet, be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter so that you could get a dose of encouragement in your inbox every Tuesday. But that's it for us today. Thanks again for listening. We hope you have a wonderful day and a wonderful week, and we look forward to catching up with you again right here next Monday. Take care. Do you ever hear sayings make their way through the culture and the church that seem nice in theory, but are actually theologically problematic? My name is Shara Donahue, and I'm the host of The Bible Never Said That, a podcast where we examine these popular sayings under the lens of biblical truth. We cover sayings like, God won't give you more than you can handle, time heals all wounds, and follow your heart. We also spend time exploring how people use Bible verses out of context. If you want to grow in discernment and truth, join us and subscribe at lifeaudio.com.